Amen. Would you take a Bible and turn with me this morning to Jeremiah, the 18th chapter? Jeremiah chapter 18. And as you turn there, I would love to invite um, a couple of groups of people to stand just briefly this morning. One of the beauties of where we are located and the fact that we have college in our name is our connection to the university and the chance to get to be involved in the lives of university students while they're here studying. Um, this is the last Sunday before graduation happens next Saturday, and so some of you who've been with us um, and are graduating uh, may not be with us again. Uh, you may be, um, but you might not be. So if you are a graduating senior uh, from a university, from NNU or another, and you're here with us today, would you stand and let us recognize you this morning and let us recognize that you're with us? Stay standing for just a second. Congratulations. If you are a, a university student and you haven't graduated yet, uh, but you've been with us this year and you're maybe escaping the summer, going home or doing something else, but have been with us, we want to recognize you too. So would you stand with those who are with us today? A bunch of us must let us this morning, some in the balcony. Thank you, and now would all of you stand in honor of the Lord's word as we look together this morning at Jeremiah, the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah received the Lord's word, go down to the potter's house, and I'll give you instructions about what to do there. So I went down to the potter's house, he was working on the potter's wheel, but the piece he was making was flawed while still in his hands, so the potter started on another, as seemed best to him. Then the Lord's word came to me. House of Israel, can't I deal with you like this potter, declares the Lord. Like clay in the potter's hand, so you are in mine, house of Israel. At any time I may announce that I will dig up, pull down, and destroy a nation or kingdom. But if that nation, I warn, turns from its evil, then I'll relent and not carry out the harm I intended for it. At the same time, I may announce that I will build and plant a nation or kingdom, but if that nation displeases and disobeys me, then I'll relent and not carry out the good I intended for it. Now say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, I am a potter preparing a disaster for you. I'm working out a plan against you, so each one of you turn from your evil ways Reform your ways and your actions. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So thanks, uh, those of you university students, uh, for standing this morning. And, and I want to say this week, as I was uh, thinking about this text, I, I mainly had you in mind. So this morning, I'd really like to just preach to you and let everybody else listen in, if that's okay. Um, if you're uh, a fan of Will Ferrell movies, uh, you know that he is, he is best known for playing kind of over-the-top characters, whether that's uh, an anchorman like Ron Burgundy or a race car driver like Ricky Bobby. Um, his brand of humor is just kind of over-the-top. Um, but my favorite Will Ferrell movie is, is a lesser-known film. It's actually kind of an independent movie in which he plays uh, a dramatic character. 
The movie's called Stranger Than Fiction. Uh, I think it's about 16 years old or so, 17 years old. But in the film, Will Ferrell plays uh, an IRS agent by the name of uh, Harold Crick, who lives a very solitary life and very ordered. Everything in his life is structured and ordered like his job. But one day he is sent to audit a particularly beautiful and colorful and kind of out-of-the-box baker, a woman named Anna, who is so out of the box that she has intentionally not been paying her taxes. And so um, they have an interesting kind of dialogue, IRS agent to tax evader. Um, But there's a little spark there, you can tell. And in this moment, that's kind of this moment of disruption where he meets this baker, another thing begins to happen. He starts to hear a voice in his head. And the voice is the voice of Emma Thompson, who who plays a, a novelist named Jules. And she begins to narrate his life. And at first, she's narrating the boring aspects of his life, that he just kind of gets up and goes to work. And there's this lovely scene where he's brushing his teeth, and she just narrates how routine the routine of his every morning. But he's hearing this voice in his head and kind of going, like, where is this voice coming from? He goes to the bus stop, and he realizes that his wristwatch has stopped. And so he resets his stop. He resets his watch when he asks somebody there, what time is it? And the narration in his head says, the problem is Harold just set his watch three minutes too early. And the voice says, which will ultimately result in Harold's death. To which he responds, what? (laughs) So the funny part of the film is then that Harold realizes that somehow his life has been caught up and is being told by somebody else. That his life is being narrated by this narrator somewhere in his head. So at first he goes to a psychologist to make sure he's not gone crazy. The psychologist can't really help him. So the psychologist sends him to a literature professor, played really wonderfully by Dustin Hoffman, who who thinks, well, yeah, somebody must be writing your story. So here's what we need to figure out first. Is the story that's being written, is it a comedy or a tragedy? At first... Harold's convinced that it must be a comedy because the more that this voice in his head narrates, the more exciting his life becomes. He starts to kind of get out more, explore nature, takes up playing the guitar. The routines of his life kind of get broken and he falls in love with this woman, Anna, the tax delinquent baker. And they discover eventually though, that this voice in his head is actually a real person, a real author. And The twist comes when they discover that this author is famous for writing tragedies. And so what he thinks is a new comedy that's being written actually is leading to a great tragedy. Jules, Emma Thompson's character, finally meets Harold. And they both realize the great strangeness of this plot is that she's writing a fictional book, but it's somehow gotten caught up with this very real person. Unfortunately, she's already finished the book. And she gives it to Harold, and Harold and Anna read the manuscript together. And sure enough, the ending is tragic, but it's beautiful. In fact, they decide this is the greatest book she's ever written. It's a masterpiece. And the ending of the book is that because his watch is off, he shows up at the bus stop three minutes too early one day and sees a young boy who almost gets hit by the bus, but he jumps out and rescues him. And Harold is hit by the bus and killed, but he saves this boy 
And Harold, even though he's not thrilled about this ending, decides to go ahead and submit himself to the plot of the narrator. I'm going to ruin the movie for you. It's been out 18 years. You could have watched it by now. (laughs) But the plot is, once she has met Harold and sees the beauty of his own life and his willingness to submit to the beauty of life, she ends up tearing out the last pages and rewriting the ending in ways that leave the future open, not only for her, but leave the future open for Harold and for Anna as well. I was thinking about that film in the light of the text from Jeremiah this morning. So Jeremiah, the last four weeks we've been in the book of Isaiah, and now we move to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet that shows up in a particularly difficult moment in the history of Judah. So let me get nerdy for just a moment. The four weeks that we were in the book of Isaiah, we talked about how scholars think the first 39 chapters, Isaiah 1 through 39, emerge out of problems in the 8th century B.C., where both Israel or Ephraim and Judah exist, the 10 tribes in the north, the two tribes in the south, but they are, they are confronted by a superpower called Assyria. And in that 8th century, eventually Assyria comes and conquers those 10 tribes and utterly destroys Ephraim or Israel. But Assyria comes to the boundaries of Jerusalem, to the very gates of Jerusalem, and there's some wonderful trash talking that happens in the latter parts of like Isaiah 36 and 37 where they threaten Hezekiah, where they threaten the the Judeans, but eventually God intercedes on their behalf and Sennacherib and the Assyrians go home and Jerusalem is delivered. Scholars think that in between chapter 39 and chapter 40, there is a 160-year break. That the first section emerges out of the 8th century, but the latter section, chapters 40 through 66, emerge out of the 6th century. When another superpower, Babylon, has come and has, like Jonah being swallowed up by the fish, has swallowed up Judah into exile. And that those chapters emerge as words of comfort and hope to a people who are sure they have no future, but then not only narrates what future they have, but then later narrates how they begin to enact that future in Jerusalem. Are you with me? So there's this 160-year gap. So if we could take Isaiah 1 through 39, and then we could take 40 through 66 and do this... And then take Jeremiah and go, Jeremiah belongs in the middle right there. In the 7th century BC. We think that Jeremiah was probably born somewhere around 650, 650 BC. That he was born actually at a time when Judah was kind of at a high point. The, The young king Josiah was in power. And Josiah had brought a great revival to the land. He had torn down all of the the high places, all the idols. He had brought about real restoration. It was a wonderful moment in Judah's history. But after Josiah, it took a really sharp turn. And so the life of Jeremiah is basically, it enters into, he enters into ministry in this really high point for Judah. But then the whole of his ministry is this rapid decline in Judah until finally we get into the 500s. And all of a sudden, the question then that dominates Jeremiah's life and ministry is this. What is the future of Judah? What what future does God's people have? Because right now, it doesn't seem very optimistic. There are all these threats and changes and cultural problems. There are all of... (laughs) The Barna research team has been doing research throughout Judah and the church attendance is declining. 
People are chasing after idols. Everything seems to be in upheaval and division. It just doesn't look good. What is the future for Judah? Now, some prophets, in particular a prophet named Hananiah, jumps in and says, we're going to be fine. Everybody relax. Let me remind you of who God is. God is the God who brought us out of Egypt when we were in bondage. God is the one who saved us from the hand of the Assyrians. God is going to deliver us from Babylon in the same way that God delivered us from the Assyrians. And all God's people said, amen. Hananiah had a great church. People showed up. People were very excited about this message. The kings loved Hananiah. But Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, I don't think that's actually what's going to happen. In fact, I feel like the word of the Lord has come upon me and has burdened me. And here is the word. This is not going to get better. In fact, the two primary words that show up in Jeremiah 18, but show up all over the place in the book of Jeremiah is this. God has determined that this is the time when God is going to tear this whole thing down. Some of you may feel that pain. Uh, You bought a fixer-upper that you thought, this is going to be really great, only to find out it's a giant money pit. And we just need to tear the whole thing down and start over. The language of Jeremiah is God's going to tear this thing down so that he can rebuild. Or the other language is this. God's going to rip out like a gardener, tearing out the bad crop. He's going to tear out so that he can replant. By the way, Jeremiah's church didn't go very well. His ministry was often embroiled in conflict because people really didn't like, as you can understand, the message that Jeremiah brought. Now, Jeremiah is quite colorful in this message that he brings. Um, He uses all sorts of images and metaphors and speech acts Um, he does things with rotten figs and with worn out underwear that's very interesting and for a time he wears a yoke around town to illustrate this is where we're going we're going to be yoked and burdened but perhaps the most famous image from Jeremiah is the one we read today the potter at the wheel working with the clay in fact it becomes such an important image that the latter part of Isaiah, Isaiah 45, picks up the same image. And in fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 picks up the same image as well. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And the Lord says, go down to the potter's house. Now, I know that Toby and maybe some of the rest of you are potters, contemporary potters. And that's really beautiful and, and interesting, the, the kinds of things that contemporary potters do. But contemporary potters get to cheat just a little bit. Because most of our household, go- household goods now are made in other kinds of ways. Some machine spits out most of our plates these days, right? Or our cups, and we buy them fairly inexpensively at Target or wherever. But in the ancient, and modern contemporary potters also get the benefit of going to fancy craft stores where you buy clay that is really quite expensive and has been treated in various ways where you don't have to worry so much about the quality of that clay. But in the ancient world, that is not the case. In the ancient world, a a potter makes stuff because this is the cheapest way for households to have cups and plates and oil lamps and all the kind of necessities of daily life. 
Dirt is relatively cheap, right? Clay is cheap. But if you can form it and then put it in a kiln and fire it, it can last for a while and be fairly sturdy. But it also can be quite artistic. And so in the metaphor that that God is using as Jeremiah goes to the potter's house is that elsewhere where the scripture talks about God being a judge or a teacher, a shepherd, a farmer, a builder, a parent, a lover. Here, God invites us to imagine that God is an artist crafting people into something that is both useful but purposeful. But here's the powerful part of the text. In the ancient world, you had to kind of get what you could get in terms of clay. And if you found a good source of clay, you really maximized it. But for the most part, as you're working with that clay, the potter would discover that there were still rocks and pebbles, hard places within that clay. And so as they are working with the clay, they have to cut out those hard places, take out those pebbles and rocks, make sure that the clay itself can respond to the work of the potter. Because if it doesn't, when it's put into the kiln, it cracks or breaks. Are you with me? And so two really interesting lines in the text. It's as though Jeremiah, as he watches the potter, imagines that the potter may think this clay that I have to work with isn't very good. And so I'm not going to use it for good purposes. You know, in the ancient world, there were no potties. And so I'm going to make a honey pot, right, out of this clay. This is not clay for fine china. This is clay for kind of the gross household purposes. But here's what the text kind of imagines. As the potter is working with this, what he assumed or she assumed was cheap clay, all of a sudden realizes, no, this is really responsive. This is malleable to the purposes. I intended to use it for this, but here's what I'm going to do instead. I'm going to use it for this. And on the other hand, the potter may have in front of him or her this Really, what they assumed was great clay, but as they work with it, it doesn't respond. It's already hardened. It has all these gaps and chips and places. And I thought I was going to use this for some great purpose, but instead, it won't let me work with it. Therefore, I'm going to use it for other kinds of purposes. Are you with me? And so the language is, there are nations that God has formed and raised up, but as they resist that work that God is doing, God realizes, I'm going to have to set them aside or use them for some other purposes than the revelation for which I created them. But other nations that I thought I intended for brokenness and destruction, but they respond in such repentance that I now am going to use them for great purposes. Yeah? So it's this strange image That says, we are clay in the hands of the potter, but that doesn't mean that as the potter works with us that that destiny is necessarily determined because how we respond to the potter also shapes what the potter can do for us and in us and through us. Are you with me? Okay. Now here is why I think this is important to us. I think we live in a time and in a particular kind of moment in history and philosophical culture where we are deeply shaped by something that is actually at some level good. We've been shaped by a kind of philosophical tradition that I would describe as, as existentialism. 
that we are free. We have the ability to determine certain things for us. And, and in a lot of ways, that's been really wonderful. It's elevated human rights. It's, make us, it's caused us to take seriously the decisions that we make in our lives. But at its extreme, where I think it's likely, largely have gone in our culture, what it means then is that we largely then determine our own stories. So let me pick on somebody for a minute. And, and I realized this semester in class, because I pick on this song every semester in class, and this semester only one student knew it. So I looked it up and realized this song came out 19 years ago, and I really need to update my pop culture references. But, but for all the Gen Xers in the room, um, there it is. You know who you are. Um, 19 years ago, there came out this pop song uh, by a young woman named Natasha Bedingfield, although she's probably not young anymore. Um, but she wrote a, a, a song that became quite popular, a song called Unwritten. And the lyrics go like this. I'm unwritten. Can't read my mind. I'm undefined. I'm just beginning. The pen's in my hand. The ending unplanned. And then the chorus goes like this. Staring at the blank page before you. Open up the dirty window. Let the sun illuminate the words that you cannot find. Reaching for something in the distance so close you can almost taste it. Release your inhibitions. Feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. Only you can let it in. Come on. Preach. No one else. No, thank you. Come on, Perry. Sing. No one else. No one else can speak the words on your lips. Drench yourself in words unspoken. Live your life with arms wide open. Today is where your book begins. The rest is still unwritten. Amen. Beautiful. Woo. If Jean-Paul Sartre was still alive, he would have made that number one on his iPod, uh, on his playlist. But um, that sounded very Gen X too. But, um, but I think it's a really great song, but... But if you're listening well this morning, I think if Jeremiah had heard that song, he would go, that's rubbish. Like, that's rubbish. Your life is not a, a book with blank pages. And you have a pen in your hand ready to just write the script of your life any old way you want to write that. For Jeremiah, your life is more like being stuck in a Will Ferrell movie. Where you are Harold Crick, you are less of a blank book and you are more like clay in the hands of a potter. And so this morning, what I think is so important in this text is for us to embrace and to realize that meaning comes not from writing our own story, but discovering that you and I are caught in a cosmic story of love and renewal and forgiveness and redemption. And in, in that story, you and I have been created, or maybe it's better to say we are being created to play a key role in that story that God is writing. And so the question is not, what are you going to make of your life? So much as, what are you going to allow God to make of your life? How malleable are you going to be to God's voice? How open to God's transformation and formation are you going to be? How resistant are you going to be to God's purposes? And, and I have to confess this morning, as I think about this text and as I thought about it this week, 
I mostly thought about it in the light of individuals, in particular 18 to 23-year-old individuals who we as a culture often tell them, you have this blank book, now what are you going to write in it? And please make it good so we can like it on Instagram later. And no wonder that feels so overwhelming. But this text is really not just about individuals, it's also about communities. In the language of Jeremiah, it's about nations. So I kind of want to come back to this text next week and ask us, College Church, are we clay in the hands of God? Or are we resistant to what God wants us to do? Church of the Nazarene, are we clay in the hands of God? Body of Christ in the world, are we clay in the hands of God? Because if we're not, the purposes God desired for us will be set aside and God will find other clay to fulfill those purposes. And I I wish, by the way, that this text had a happy ending. Um, That may be why I went to Stranger Than Fiction. It has a happy ending. This does not. In fact, if you have your Bible still open, I stopped reading at verse 11 because that's where the lectionary cuts it off. But really, verse 12 is in the paragraph too. And here's how verse 12 goes. Here's what the clay said back. But they said, what's the use? We will follow our own plans and act according to our own willful, evil hearts. Then verse 13 starts, therefore the Lord proclaims, and there's just this, all of this judgment on the clay that refuses to be malleable in the hands of the potter. And then read chapter 19. God tells Jeremiah, buy an expensive piece of pottery from that potter. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to call everybody together. Go down to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which in the New Testament becomes Gehenna, the garbage dump, which later becomes the language you use to describe hell. Jeremiah takes an expensive piece of pottery down to the gates of hell and smashes it in front of the entire community and says, this is what God is doing with us because we, are, we refuse to be malleable in the hands of the potter. And later, where Paul takes this, is he'll say to the Corinthians, listen, it's really not that important what God is making you, whether you are an oil lamp or a cup or a dish or a pot. Like, that's not what matters. What matters is the treasure that you hold inside. For we are jars of clay meant to be bearers of the treasure of God's redemption in the world. And so here's what I want to say to all of you um, who I had stand earlier. And it's really, this is really deeply personal for me. If you were to ask me what's been probably the most important conversion in a whole series of conversions and ongoing conversions in my life, it was when I was about the age that you are right now And I really was not a bad kid. Ask my mom. Um, But I came to the realization that I was treating my life like a blank book that I was writing. Now, I had written God in. If you flip through, I think more than the average teenager, God showed up on more pages than my friends. They didn't use them a lot. Really. 
I'm not sure some of them knew how to spell it. Like I, there got on a lot of pages. But I realized I was largely writing my story, adding God into my story where it seemed appropriate and where it really wasn't going to bother anything with the hopes that if I, wrote, if I wrote Jesus on enough pages, when we got to the epilogue, the epilogue would be really happy. But largely the conclusion would be mine. And it really, the conversion became a transformation of imagination where I ceased to be the author of my own destiny and became clay in the hands of a potter. I said, God, I don't don't know what you want to make of me. I know what you want to fill me with, but I don't know what kind of instrument you want to make me to be. But take out the rough places and the places that are resistant to what you want to do in my life. And I say that to you this morning because I don't know that God really cares that much if, you, if he forms you to be an engineer or a banker or a coach or a pastor or a teacher or a homemaker. Like, I don't know if the shape of the pot matters as much as the willingness of the clay to be molded in God's hands and to be a vessel for the work of God in the world. And so this morning, I, I would love for us to close with a prayer time and I, I know I made you stand earlier, and the reason I made you stand earlier is because so I wouldn't put you on the spot now and make you stand and say, okay, good, come to the altar. But especially for those of you who are graduating, it would be a privilege as a place that got to be part of the body of Christ for you during these days if you allowed us to get to pray a prayer blessing on you today. And so in just a moment as we sing, I'd love for maybe some of you to come to these altars. And And even some of you who aren't seniors yet, but you are, um, you're headed for places this summer where God's going to use you. And it would mean a lot for the body of Christ to gather around and say blessings on you. And even though I I thought about the 18 to 23 year olds in the room this week as I was thinking about the sermon, it really applies, by the way, to now 57 year olds, to 87 year olds, to 97 year olds. And so some of you may want to respond as well this morning to simply say to God, God, I I want to be clay in your hands. Forgive me for being resistant. And, And here's the beauty. Jeremiah, as harsh as he can be, and as nervous as he is about where this story is headed for Judah, He can't help himself. He knows God too well. God refuses to give up on the clay that he has made and just keeps working and reforming and pushing and molding. And so this morning, as we sing a song that switches metaphors, by the way, I wish I had a good clay-making song this morning. But it's a song that moves from the art of pottery to the art of music. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart, tune my heart to sing thy grace. I'd love to invite you to come and pray this morning. Um, And in just a moment, Pastor Grant, I'd love for you to pray for them if we could. But let's sing together. Now.
I want to sing uh, just that last verse in chorus, a cappella, for just a moment. And again, I, I would love for some of you college kids, students and those graduating to allow us to pray for you this morning. But I want to sing a cappella because I know you guys. I, I want to pray for you guys as well this morning, if that's okay. Jenna, what are you doing this summer? Traveling all over. Traveling. Yeah. Yeah, traveling. So come on, let us pray for you this morning. I was lost in utter darkness till you came and rescued me. I was bound by all my sin when your love came and set me free. Now my soul can sing a new song. Now my heart has found a home. Now your grace is always with me. And I'll never be I know that some of you saints want to gather around them, so do that as we sing this chorus. Come thou found, come thou king, come thou precious prince of peace. Hear your bride to you we sing, come thou fount of our blessing. Come thou found, come thou king, come thou precious prince of peace, hear your bride to you we sing, come thou found of our blessing. Pray first, Grant. God, we thank you so much for those students who are here, those who have come down to the front, those who have stayed in their seats, uh, who have um, 
been a part of this community, um, some for many, many years. We thank you for the opportunity to have uh, worshiped alongside them and for the ways that they in turn have also served this church and, and the work of, of your kingdom. So for those who are just finishing another year and maybe aren't yet at that point of graduation, um, whether they make their home here and will be with us during the summer or heading back home somewhere else or will be traveling, we just pray that you would continue to keep your hand over their lives. Help them to tune their hearts to hear your voice as you invite them to participate more fully in a vision of what it looks like to be your hands and feet to the world. For those who are here who are graduating, we know there are several whether it's from across the street or somewhere else. God, we just thank you so much for your faithfulness in bringing them to this point. As they look back over the last four years and the rather tumultuous time they've had and the different ways of, of education and the ways that their educations have been impacted by um, the pandemic and lots of other things, we praise you, God, for your faithfulness for bringing them to this finishing point, for bringing this work to completion, this step in their journey. We pray that you continue to guide them, help their hearts to be, to be soft, moldable, malleable, so that they can become um, great people of great vocation and calling, but also, God, simply to be soft, to be shaped into the ways that you have dreams for them, ways that you long to use them. We thank you so much for your faithfulness there. And God, I just want to pray that prayer for all of us today. As it's been said, it's not just a prayer and a calling to be shaped for those who are at a certain stage of life, but for all of us. So we ask that you would give us the courage to be moldable, to allow ourselves to be broken out of those hard places and to instead be soft, and the discernment to hear your voice as you are calling us and forming us into what you long for us to be. So for all of these students here, for all those who will be traveling, and for those who are graduating, we thank you so much for your presence and, and the gift of your faithfulness, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Would you all stand with us? Oh, to grace, how great a debt. Daily I'm constrained to let thy goodness like a bind my yielded heart to Let me know thee in thy fullness. Guide me by thy mighty hand till transformed in thine own image. In thy presence I let me know thee in thy fullness. Guide me by thy mighty hand till transformed in thine own image. In thy presence I shall stand. Well, thanks. Thanks for letting us pray for you today. Um, know that we love you and we'll continue to pray for you and we'll continue to take credit for all of your successes. <laughs> if you've listened well this morning, 
you could treat your life like a blank book. And all of you in this room, you're talented and smart. And you could write a kind of interesting story. But the significance of your story, the significance of your life will be determined by how much you allow the potter to craft your life and the mission of your life. And so unto him, who by his power at work within us is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, to him be glory in us, the clay he calls his church, and in the master craftsman, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, now and for all generations. And all God's people said, amen. Go in his peace.